stand talking to our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Bobby Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Hey, gang, this is an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy comics, and every week we interact with all of our awesome listeners, and do you want to tell them all about it? We're going to tell you what we're going to read, and then we're going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it, and then you're going to listen to us <laughs> talk about it, and then you're going to send us a, hey, damn, guys, that's an email, or you get on the social media, and then you talk about what we talked about. And then we're going to talk about what you talked about, about what we talked about. <laughs> and then we're going to tell you again what you're going to read next time. And then that's friendship. And that's a book club. Back to you, John. Oh, thank you so much for doing that. And I want to give a quick update on our GoFundMe. You know, we still have a couple of days left. By the time that you guys read this, it'll be over. We're supporting the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And um, I really appreciate all the book club members and everyone else who's contributed. Um, as of right now, we're at... 1390 1390 so yeah that's way over what our goal was so and so i am so excited yeah this awesome thing and so just i just want to make it clear that's like this is not our gofundme yeah exactly not, yeah, no it's not for us <laughs> it's not for us and it, it all goes to a great cause and if you've contributed just keep your eye on your email i'm going to be using the gofundme platform to notify the winners of people who have won comics and i'm going to need your addresses and all that kind of stuff so, you know, check your spam folder on, you know, maybe tomorrow or something like that. And I'll probably post a video on our Instagram of me picking the, the actual winners and stuff like that. So, you know, just keep an eye on our social media and check your email. Thank you guys so much again. There's still a couple of days left, so maybe we'll have a higher amount by the end of it. I also put here on my notes, say a thing. Oh, no. Now I'm going to say another thing. So... You know, I, I just wanted to follow up really quickly on the controversy surrounding these books and everything that's come out in the last couple of weeks. You know, Matt and I recorded that quick episode to discuss our thoughts, and that was literally that night that the allegations came out. And since that recording, more information has come to light, and a lot of people have been asking me about it. And, you know, I'm just going to keep... Which is like as though you're an expert in these people's personal lives. It's so strange. And, 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 and I do feel weird about people asking me about it, and... You know, but but I don't want to pretend like it's not happening. Well, no, but you know just as much as what we're seeing on Twitter. Exactly. Like that's, you don't have any inside information in these people's lives. And so I'm just going to keep things vague. All the information's out there if you want to look at it. But basically, someone came out and they said, ah, oh, well, Mignola knew and Dark Horse knew and they didn't say anything. And then someone else came out and said, oh, all of y'all were toxic when I was working there. And then someone else came out and said, oh, that's not true. And there was a lot of back and forth. And obviously, all this news is really upsetting to hear. And we even talked about this a little bit when the new movie came out. There's obviously some beef between these guys for reasons that we'll probably never fully know. And maybe it has to do with some of this stuff. You know, I don't know. But my problem with the whole thing, and I wrote something about this on Twitter too, is that no one said anything. Okay? It seems to me like a lot of people kind of pass the buck. I'm going to keep doing my work, but I'm not going to say anything. You know, in Miss Gore's statement, she said that she was in the car with colleagues when she was assaulted and she couldn't say anything. And I think that is the problem. To feel oh, like you're surrounded by coworkers and you can't yell for help right. when someone is touching your butt. Like, what the That's fuck awful. is that? And it's like everybody wants to come out and, and point the finger, it seems like. But it took her coming out and saying something. You know, when everyone else, to me, it seems like is sitting on the information. And so even this last week, 
as of this recording, there was continued fallout at Dark Horse. Sean Wynn came out and he said that he was treated poorly at Dark Horse and he ca- and he called out some Dark Horse personnel as being bigots. And fortunately, it wasn't anyone that I recognized from working on the Hellboy books, but it was people that worked at Dark Horse. And he said he went all the way to the president of Dark Horse and said something and nothing happened. It- it's hard to know how to react to all this. But if anyone out there is looking for guidance on how to feel about this issue, I I say don't look at me, okay? Look at the ones who were actually assaulted. Look at the victims, you know? And I realize that there might be more out there who haven't come forward, which is frightening to me. It makes my stomach hurt to think that there are probably more voices unheard regarding this issue. But the fact of the matter is, Shauna Gore came out, and she thanked Mignola, and she even thanked Dark Horse for their statements. Mignola also added a detailed statement on his website, you can go and read that, and he describes himself as being furious with himself over this whole thing. Does that absolve things? Absolutely not. I mean, you're going to have to decide for yourself how you feel about supporting the fandom, or the books, or whatever. I have really been thinking about this a lot, and... I really appreciate the community and the friendships and, you know, these comics and these stories have really meant a lot to me personally and, you know, I I still value that. And so here we are still recording the show and I don't know, you know, maybe we'll get haters for saying that we should, we are still doing the show or whatever. I I don't know, but I, I think we all have to decide how we feel about this and I can't tell you how to feel. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to look at what Ms. Gore has said and what the victims have said. And who knows, there might be more people that come out. There might be more information that comes to light by the time you hear this recording. I'm not going to, I'm not planning on doing a play by play every week of the controversy and as it unfolds, but it is something that we have to recognize. And I think we have to, you know, all come to terms with how we feel about it. And I think it's good that this stuff is coming out. It needs to. What we are being shown is that this is a systemic problem throughout the comics industry and even throughout the movie industry and all these kinds of things. And And like Matt and I said, it all needs to come out. It needs to come out and, you know, it needs to be dealt with in that kind of manner. And you need to decide yourself how you feel about it today we're going to be talking about chris robertson and paul grist and bill crabtree and all the amazing work that they've done and you know there are still a lot of artists that i want to appreciate that are part of these books that are really great so you know that is kind of my statement following up on what was said in the episode with matt and i don't know i mean do you have anything to add danielle like you said several times we need to focus on what Miss Shauna Gore said. We need to focus on, we need to really center her when yeah. we are talking about this because so many people want to kind of go off topic and say, well, you did this and you didn't do this and you, and what about, my, I'm like these books. What am I going to do with my precious fandom? And it's, it's like, okay, we should be centering these people who were hurt yeah. at all times and think about what their how they feel about it matters the most to me. And I think that they get to say how they feel and no one can tell them how they should feel and no one can tell them what they should or shouldn't do mm-hmm. about the fact that they were assaulted. Right. And so, you know, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? How come you did this? No, they get to handle that the way that they're going to handle it. And like you said, we don't know anyone's minds. We're not fucking mind readers and we're not psychics. All we know is what, she said, and what she said was, this happened to me, and then 
Mike Mignola said something about that, and and she said, thank you, Mike. Yeah. And Dark Horse said something, and she was like, thank you for doing that. You know, so apparently she is grateful for what they said. That's all we fucking know. Right. So, I, I mean, I believe everything she said in her statement. That's good enough for me. I believe everything Mike Mignola said in his statement. That's good enough for me. And I don't know about this closed-door finger-pointing shit, but it looks like the goddamn Spider-Man meme. And I wasn't fucking there. <laughs> right. So, but all you people going, oh, well, you didn't, like, well, neither did you. All I give a shit about is the people who were hurt, the end, I guess. I don't yeah. really know what else to say. Like, yeah. these are wonderful stories, full of wonderful art, and it's... <laughs> it's upsetting. We've been, appreciating, we've been appreciating these stories for what they are. We haven't gone off on a fucking thing like, oh, you know, like, I'm very happy to just never fucking talk about scott alley ever again i don't give a shit yeah but like you said we have to tread carefully if it comes out that every single one of these goddamn people did something we might right. have to just stop doing the show right. i don't know i don't i, I don't know so you know? i mean yeah you know like you said who knows by the time this airs a whole bunch of other fucking shit will happen on twitter and who fucking knows but it needs to come out so that it doesn't happen anymore if you're in a van full of people and someone's grabbing your ass or whatever and you feel like you can't say anything that's a huge problem yeah. you don't feel safe around the person who's doing that to you but you also don't feel safe around everyone else in that goddamn van so everyone listening like there is something you can do you can make yourself the person who makes other people feel safe you can say you can always speak up around me i will protect you you can come to me you can be that person who who makes your surroundings a place where people feel comfortable speaking up before it happens, while it's happening, after it happens, whatever. You can you can make your own communities that place. Yeah. And that's your job. So sorry to go off on that rant. No, thank you for that. Thank you for saying that. that. Do you have anything you want to add, Aubrey? Not too much. I mean, you and I talked uh, the other day and pretty much everything you said, you know, I already agree with. And the same thing, Danielle. Um, but like like you were I wanna to touch on what you were saying there at the end. It's like, you know, uh, people are saying you saw you knew this and blah 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 uh, but they didn't say anything so like if you see something speak up you know S- say something don't let predators just exist in your world yeah and, you know? and, and, and I mean and I, I've never been in that situation I don't know how difficult it is but if you do say something and no one does anything then I think you need to amplify your voice or you need yeah. to say something more or well you this can- is a tricky area though because you don't want to out someone who's been assaulted right. if they're not ready to come forward because that's a whole fucking can of worms. Right, right. They can be yeah. attacked publicly. They can be, I mean, you know, and some, some people are going to be like, well, who exactly did this happen to? And they're going to want details. And you'll be like, well, I can't say that because it's private. And they'll be like, well, then what can we do about it? So it's a really right. fucked up thing yeah. to where people well, are scared and you do, you want to respect that, but you also want to do something. So that can also be part of this as well. I don't know. Well, I mean, if, like, let's say you're somebody and you're in a work situation and you see something and you know and you you know the person doesn't want you to out them. So you, you at least you go to HR and say like, "Hey, I saw person A do something to a person anonymous." So that way, you know, you can say like, "I know there's really nothing you can do without more information," but at least you have information that this guy did something. So if the person does kind of come out, they can go to you know HR. You know, there can be like a pattern of record that this guy is a bad person. Right. I mean, you know. That's it's that's part of the issue that is that it's like John was saying like it's it's systemic it's yeah. like it's set up to protect people doing this shit just because people don't want to come forward because they feel like no one's gonna believe them no one's gonna protect them no one's gonna do jack shit it's gonna ruin your career you're gonna get a reputation for being difficult to work with uh, 
so on and so forth. And and the more serious things is you hear people going to the police, police don't do jack shit about it, they laugh at you, right? whatever. Right. And so it's kind of like, when you say it's systemic, that means every single person has to change their mind about this. Right. And that's fucked up because it's so difficult to, how, I mean, how the fuck are you going to do that? So, so it's like, really what you want ideally is for this to not fucking happen. And to do that, it needs to be a no tolerance from the get go of like, right. They people need to be able to say, "Hey, don't fucking touch me." Yeah. What the fuck's your problem? Hey, this guy wanted to fucking try and touch me. Yeah. And everyone's like, "Hey, get the fuck out of here. That's not cool." But instead, it's like, "Well, we don't know if that really happened or not. You yeah. know, I don't know. You yeah. could ruin this man's life." And so it's kind of like you need instead of branding the people who are assaulted as troublemakers, the troublemakers are the people who are assaulting people. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, every single person has to change their mind about that at the same fucking time, and that's. It seems like a Sisyphean task. Well, and that's what's happening right now. Yeah. You know, that that's and we're seeing the fallout of that. And I think that we just have to go with it with the information that comes out. And, you know, somebody got on me on Twitter and they said, oh, well, I think you're taking it easy on Mignola. Well, maybe I am. You know, maybe this is not a good idea for us to keep doing the show. You know, I don't know. I guess we'll see how many downloads we get I mean, or whatever. But, but it's like Mike Mignola said himself, he's like, hey, I'm going to live with this regret. I, he and he was like, "Look, if I had heard about this, he would have been gone. Are you yeah. kidding me?" And so I believe him when he says that too. I right. mean, I yeah. And again, this is not something that I ever thought we'd be no, talking no, about on the not, show. You know, I don't think we're qualified to talk no. about this kind of thing. But we're just fans reacting like everybody else. And if you're looking to us to try and figure out how to feel about this. You're, you're looking in the wrong yeah. place. I you, wouldn't even classify us as like fans because we're just, it's a book club. It's about, like we always talk about, it's about friendship. <laughs> yes. And we want to, we, we have made so many wonderful friends, to you know, doing this and, and talking about these books and what they mean to us. It's a book club for friends to be friends. And yeah. it's, we don't usually talk about the creator's personal lives whatsoever, but it's obviously it's important if somebody has hurt somebody else. Yeah. We, we need way. to, we, we, we need to address it. And you know, um, I've also been struggling with how can we use this platform for good, just like we raise money for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. You know, I have some ideas of maybe another thing that we can do, maybe another giveaway that we can come down the pipe. I've been talking to some other book club members about this. And so you'll see that um, in the near in the very near future. Yeah. Well, we want we're, well, basically what that means is we're doing research on what's uh not a horrible sham organization that you know like all these like quote unquote nonprofits it's really just like lining the pockets of these millionaires so we want to kind of find something that's actually going to directly help people and yes. not like just yes. go to some quote unquote it's charity it's really not right right thing. so we're researching but um yeah thank you Aubrey and thank you Danielle for for commenting on that I know it's a awkward uh, discussion to have but it but it's important and I want to put it out there for you guys too for you to reflect and, and think about as well but I'm not going to read all the comments of what people have to say you know we had a lot of discussion about that but you know we also did have lack of posts you know I didn't I stopped posting when the thing came out and then we took a week off and I really want to thank everyone for the kind comments and for understanding you know Things are really scary in Texas, uh, you know, as far as the coronavirus, and that's a whole other thing that is kind of consuming our lives on top of this that is like, you know, obviously because we're fans, this is a big deal for us too, you know, but I, I wouldn't be lying if I didn't say that that wasn't part of the reason why I didn't want to do an episode last week. Well, it fr fr Frankly, I was thinking about if I even wanted to continue to yeah. do the show, you know, but everybody was so supportive and everybody said, you know, take care of yourselves and 
There was so much love out there. I, and so thank you for everyone for all those comments. I'm not going to read all the comments, but I did want to read the one that we got from Clayton Schofield. He said, I think the BPRD have some of Johan's spare suits that they could lend you. If you had to yeah. choose between the classic look or the Yosef Russian inspired look, what which one would it be? Well, you, you got to think about functionality and not just uh, aesthetics. I have knuckles now. Right. So it's it's an aesthetics and a functionality issue. That's a multifaceted issue. I don't know, Aubrey. What do you think about that? I really like the body of the Yosef suit, but I really love the head of the classic suit. Mm. Uh, Functionality-wise, I'd probably go uh, with the Yosef suit. But for a black tie affair, I'll go for the original suit. Okay. Nice. Okay. okay. <laughs> That's a good choice. I don't know. Just turn me into a, a ghost vapor, and I'm going to travel the universe as a, as there you a go. ridiculous ghost vapor. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm tired. Like you, like you just mentioned, like John just mentioned, we're in Houston. Yeah. I don't know if you, and it's so fucking weird because this is such a, you don't know if news is actually making it to the rest of the world kind of situation right, about no. how bad it is. They are setting up triage centers in like emergency room parking lots. It's bad, y'all. Like, it's fucked yeah. up and scary. And so yeah. it's not an exaggeration when I say that it is, it is the scariest thing I've ever fucking dealt with. The hospitals are like 100%. They're having to transfer them to the other places. And the Texas Medical Center is the largest medical center in the world. In the world. Yeah. On the face of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So Clayton said, stay well, gang. There are more important things than discussing beans and counting booms. Thank you, Clayton. Yeah. <laughs> On a more positive note. Ross Radke, oh my god. Ross Radke. Book Ross club member, Radke. yeah. Book club member. Stomped oh. is live. If you contributed to Ross Radke's Kickstarter for his amazing comic Stomped, uh, we got our digital copies yeah. yesterday. Wow. And oh my god, it was so awesome. It was really a shot in the arm that I needed to be able to feel uh, motivated to be part of the fandom again and just to be positive about something. The comic was incredible. I was blown away by it. I can't uh, wait to get my physical copy. I thought Matt did an excellent job. And we're in there. There's some special guests, uh, <laughs> we some are. Special guests in there. That was, that uh, was awesome. Yeah, that, that, I, when I, when that came yesterday and I saw that. And it really put a smile on my face yeah. because I, I told you guys about the plumbing issues. Right, right. <laughs> You've been dealing with your own stuff in your house yeah, right yeah. now. So. But uh, getting that, it was just kind of like getting, taking a break from everything. And it was like... It was fun to read. It was so good. The art was amazing. Uh, Matt's story was, it was so perfect. It (laughs) felt wonderful. I I enjoyed reading every every page of it, and I can't wait for the next issue. Yeah. Like you said, the art was... Stellar. Yeah, fucking amazing. Amazing job by Ross. One panel in particular. Oh, my God. It was great. (laughs) God, I was just dying looking at that thing. And so, yeah, um, thank you so much, Ross. And maybe we'll be hearing from Ross hey, in the near future. We'll maybe. see. And also, leave us a review and all that junk. Ah, well, just, you know, leave us a review. Like, yeah, reach out and talk to us and be our friend. Yeah, that would be great. And now it's time for Bean Talk uh-huh. with Aubrey and the gang. No, I've canceled this <laughs> segment. No, so, uh, no, I wanted to talk about this because Aubrey sent me an urgent message last night. Oh, man. You know, I and and I am ready, and I am I I cannot wait for your report. So please, Aubrey, fill us in. So last night we made beans and toast. Okay. <laughs> all right. How was that? What uh, kind of bread did you use? First of all, uh, well, we use like this uh, um, our Sara Lee artisanal bread. We got it in the in the bread aisle. It's a fancy uh, bread, and so it wasn't super fancy, but it was fancier than the normal bread. Okay. Was it sliced? Uh, 
thicker than your average <laughs> loaf of bread or uh, hey this is legitimate it, it was it was sliced thicker than normal like okay. store-bought bread it was kind of it was but not as thick as like texas toast bread, sure bread. sure okay that gives me a good okay. no that gives me a good mental okay uh, it's important and the then consistency so the consistency of the toast sorry go ahead uh, so the beans were uh, the, the the same ones, you know, the Heinz ones. And when I first tasted it, it tasted kind of like beans I used to get in Alabama at church. So it's barbecue beans. It's like sugary uh, barbecue no, no, sauce no, beans, no, or no, 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 not like that at all. Okay, okay. So what is <laughs> it? If you had to describe these beans, what is this that we're talking about here? Kind of like baked beans, but with like a tomato sauce. Kathy described mm. them coming out of the can, kind of like spaghettios. Oh. Oh, okay. I don't know wow. About that. In the smell that first came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we cooked that. We put some um, aged sharp cheddar on top of it. Oh. Uh, threw it on the toast. And I, I liked it. I liked it. I will have it again. Sure, okay. I might, I might use a different bean, though. might use a uh, you know, more spicier bean, but that's because I like spicy. Yeah. But Kathy did bring up the point that part of it was a little soggy. Mm, yeah and see that's, that's the part that about. i well this is okay and, every part of this and, so far <laughs> has been, sounded totally unappetizing to me but and then but, but we also think that if we use a thinner slice of bread the toast it would have been uh because i feel like the toast itself was a little soft in the middle you didn't toast yeah. it like if you had toasted that a little bit more it would have been burnt on the outside right you're saying exactly. you couldn't yeah. toast it properly interesting I like the idea of like bread and cheese. That's a grilled cheese. Uh-huh. I love to make a grilled fucking cheese. I have some beans on the side of that. Sure. That's okay. It's It seems odd, but I'll do it. But <laughs> putting the beans onto there and also like a tomatoey bean, I'm not about that. Okay. So I don't know if I will be trying. It just doesn't sound like a thing I would like. But yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that it wasn't terrible okay. for y'all. Oh. So I would recommend it if, okay. you, if, you, if you can get past all that stuff that sure. Danielle just. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying, like, if it, if you know, if it sounds appetizing to you, fun and good. Yeah. For me, I think I will just stick with having because I don't even eat that kind of bean in the first place. Okay. So that's not even a thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. That's not even a thing. I think, I think about me. trying it with black beans. Yeah, black oh, beans. That sounds would be like it good. might be good. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Tweedell said, "I swear, I didn't want to talk about beans anymore." But Danielle keeps on saying they should be separate from the toast, so I feel like I should clarify. Well, they should be. Yes, she's right. At least in Australia, that's how they're served. The beans come in a little pot off to the side, separate from the toast. Whenever they do photos, though, they always put the beans on the toast. Mm. I guess they think it looks more appetizing that way. I don't know. But, like, you can scoop scoop the remaining beans and stuff with the remaining bread. Yeah. That is a thing I do all the time, is you scoop the plate with the bread. There you go. You get all the rest of well, it. Well, that's, that's the beans on toast right yeah, there. Yeah, You're doing no, it. No, no, no. But there's not enough that you've enjoyed most of the bread. You've enjoyed most <laughs> right. of the beans. Now you are just taking the last of this and getting the last of that. Oh, okay. And it doesn't have time to get soggy. <laughs> and also the flavors that we oh, are see, talking about, the, the okay. flavor profiles that we are talking about doesn't really seem like something I would go for in the first place. Right. So the textures and the flavors... Don't seem like they would be there for me personally. If they are for you, cool. I'm not trying to step on your funk. I'm just not. This is not a thing. The you know, ongoing, I'm gonna do. our ongoing, uh, ongoing discussion on whether beans on toast are appetizing. Jerry Turnbull, he said regarding Danielle and the beans, I submit Exhibit A, and he posted the pancakes comic where Hellboy eats the pancakes for the first Listen, time. And he's like, I like it. I understand <laughs> that this is a green eggs and ham kind of a situation. I get it. I'm 34 and I'm talking about whether or not I'm going to eat something. I understand that that is ridiculous. 
It has been fun to talk about, though. <laughs> thank you guys so much. And thank you, Aubrey, for that awesome update. No, I'm yeah, so glad that we had some... Uh, In-depth I... field reporting. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. All right, and now we're going to go on to our listener feedback. Back on BPRD 1947 from Lars Voltz. Lars Voltz, book club member. Yeah. And that was a story that we covered a long time ago, but he, um, with the last time that he wrote in, he talked about that he was there in the reading order. And I don't know if you remember in 1947, he said, this is great stuff. And they talked about an opera that caused the audience to burn down the opera house. Do you remember that part? That like they all went crazy and stuff like that? Yeah, that's fucking... Yeah, I do remember that. He said that this could be influenced by Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, performed in 1913. I won't spoil anything for you, but check out this Radiolab podcast on sounds. Click on the Sounds of Touch segment of the episode and get ready to hear a wild story. Yeah, so I didn't have a chance to listen to that, but I'm a huge fan of Rites of Spring. I've, I've studied that piece of music extensively sure. when I was in school. And um, yeah, so I didn't know. I guess that there was a similar thing that happened um, when that was performed for the first time. So yeah, thank you, Lars Voltz, for putting well, that in there. You can't just say that and then not ha- I What did that happen? He said we have to Lose listen to this. Shit he, and... he said we have to listen to this Radio Lab episode. To... Surely there's some sort of a Wikipedia article on this that we could just. Well, I didn't. I mean, I didn't have time to look at that. Okay. He also said it's been great listening to your old episodes while I read those books. It's fun sending you some late feedback. Take care, Lars. Thank you so much, Lars. I hope to hear from you soon. I love it when people chime in on stories that we read a long time ago with more little tidbits of information. I have a thing here. Yes, please. Go ahead. Okay. So apparently, uh, The Rite of Spring, when it was first performed uh, in 1913, the avant-garde nature of the music and choreography caused a sensation. This is directly from Wikipedia. Many have called the first night reaction a riot or near riot, though this wording did not come about until reviews of later performances in 1924, over a decade later. So apparently that is a thing. Wow. Yeah, that is super interesting. Yeah, I'll have to listen to that Radiolab episode and get some more information. Maybe I can report back next week. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, It says... Some eyewitnesses and commentators said that the disturbances in the audience began during the introduction, grew noisier when the curtain rose, and then, I don't know, so there's, yeah, there's a lot about this, but apparently it was a big, a big shit. Nice. I'm going to read more about that. That's so interesting. Thank you so much, Lars, for pointing us in that direction. We also had some feedback from Hellboy and the BPRD, The Unreasoning Beast. Patrick Reynolds commented, the artist that actually drew that hey, comic. How about that? He said, Hey, everyone, just listen to the podcast, and I am very grateful for all the kind words and positive comments. Getting to draw Hellboy was a dream come true, and I'm glad you enjoyed the story. Thank you also for providing a link to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I just made a donation. All right. So hey. thank you so much, Patrick Reynolds. That is so awesome to hear from you. Patrick Reynolds. Thank you. Book club member. Oh, man. It's always good to have a primary source weighing in. Yeah, I like that. uh, Yeah, that's pretty cool. We had some feedback on Hellboy and the BPRD Ghost Moon. Jerry Turnbull said... Jerry Turnbull! Book club member. (laughs) Definitely think Roland Childs is a nod to Patrick 
McGoohan's character, John Drake from Danger Man. Danger Man was a spy adventure series which eventually gave way to The Prisoner, which is my favorite show. McGoohan used Be Seeing You everywhere, even in the episodes of Columbo that he was in. His character, John Drake, almost always wore a hat like child. He posted a picture of this character, John Drake, and he looks just like Roland Child. He's got the white coat with the hat. So it's like, exactly. I mean, it was definitely based on that character. So thank you so much for that. Christopher Egan said, I love the inclusion of a character named Roland Child. It has to be a reference to the Robert Browning poem, Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came, which is in turn an inspiration for Stephen King's series that is a mashup sci-fi, fantasy, western, and King Arthur lore. And I can't believe I just realized that both Hellboy and Roland of Gilead are supposed to be descendants of King Arthur in their respective universes. I'm about to lose my mind. And Clayton Schofield also mentioned this connection. So there's that connection that Jerry Turnbull said, which I think is a little bit more spot on because he looks just like him. But then there's also the other connection with the Robert Browning poem. So I like that, you know, that is pulled well, from multiple sources. But this is, And this is also not the first time where there was kind of a similar connection to um, Stephen King's Dark Tower series as well. I remember, I think it was in our first year. Somebody brought it up for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. I can't, I can't yeah. pinpoint what that Back conversation was. One. Yeah, there you go. And Clayton Schofield also mentioned that connection to Stephen King. Drew Campbell said... Drew Campbell. A club member. A possible origin for the term pear-shaped in this context. They believe that the term originated with the Royal Air Force to describe pilots' poor execution of loops in the air, huh. ending up with pear shapes rather than round shapes. Okay. And Mark Tweedo also mentioned that connection as well, so that might have been one reason. But, you know, it's supposed to be round and they did it's it wrong, so it's pear-shaped. Right, okay. Yeah. So it's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> I love I lo- listening back on that episode when I was editing. It was so funny when you were like, this situation is so fucked up. It's like a pear. Yeah, like that just seems so. But no, okay, that's. He also said, I definitely immediately remember Chengdu in relation to Johan's origin. I'm actually a little shocked that Matt didn't remember it. And Mark Tweedo actually quoted what Matt said on the show. There are very few people that would have just remembered that based on the name alone. Stares pointedly. Shots fired. <laughs> Damn. Uh, Having a contest for who can be the nerdiest. Yeah. You both lose. <laughs> hey, Norris said, regarding Zhang Shi, those were those vampire monsters that we saw you know, Susan Zhang, when she was a girl, someone was fending those off. He said, they're such interesting monsters. There's a couple of really great 80s horror, comedy, kung fu movies from Hong Kong that feature Zhang Shi hopping vampires that are entertaining if you can find them. There's Encounters of the Spooky Kind from 1980, and there's also Mr. Vampire from 1985. They're both awesome if you like kung fu movies or fun horror flicks. There's like a whole genre of Zhang Shi movies, but those are the two that I've seen. Interestingly, there's a hammer flick called Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, where Dracula possesses a Chinese priest to revive seven legendary Chinese vampires. And since it's a hammer horror film, it stars, of course, the magnificent Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I have to check that out. Nathaniel Green said... Nathaniel Green. Book club member. (laughs) He said, am I reaching or does the crane emblem on the golden crane remind anyone of the headpiece to the Staff of Ra from Raiders of the Lost Ark? And he posted a a side-by-side comparison and they do look almost exactly alike. So yeah, I thought that that was really interesting. And we know that Ra has also 
um, figured into the Mignola verse, you know, into the mythology. Yeah, they've they they've mentioned of, that. The like Heliopic them. Brotherhood sure, of Ra yeah. and all that stuff. Awesome. So thank you, everyone, for all the great listener feedback. And now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. And this week we're talking about The Visitor, How and Why He Stayed. This is a five-issue miniseries published from February to July 2017. Today we're going to be discussing issues one through three. It was written by Mignola and Robertson. Art by Paul Grist. Paul Grist is a British comic book creator known for his hard-boiled police series Kane and his unorthodox superhero series Jack Staff, which I know uh, Jerry Turnbull was a big fan of. And the colors are by Bill Crabtree. Bill Crabtree has been coloring comics since 2003. His work has been nominated for Eisner and Harvey Awards for the series The Six Gun and Letters by Clem Robbins. You mentioned that we're only this episode is only going to cover the first three issues of this five-issue thing, but uh, when I sat down to read this, I forgot about everything except this thing I was reading. And I read the whole thing. Yeah. I was like, oh, hey, I read the whole thing. <laughs> because it's so fucking good. I couldn't oh stop God, reading yeah. it. It was amazing. The art the art is so beautiful. And, I mean, we'll get into that as soon as we start reading this. Like, I'm, you know, I think Aubrey and I are probably going to end up going on and on about how awesome it is. But, yeah. you know, the story itself, obviously, so fucking good. And when you get that, like, it's, a, it's just excellent storytelling. It's just excellent the momentum just carries you through. The whole world of building thing that they do there is, is it seems effortless. Yeah. But obviously, you know, everyone is master of their crafts and they spend a long time, you know, getting the skills to be able to do that. But it's yeah, this is this I'm is very, a good I'm one. I'm very excited to jump into this. So I just want to say about Bill Bill Crabtree. Uh, I just read the whole Invincible run recently, and Bill Crabtree was the colorist at the start. Oh wow! Of like the first fifty issues of that comic and. His color work in that was so beautiful. And so knowing that he got to work on this too was, was pretty awesome. Yeah, oh, okay. that's great. I'm so glad you, you had some... You're already familiar with his, yeah. with his work. That's excellent. I, I have to say, it's because of this podcast that I'm paying attention more to who actual colorists that's are. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, it's so that's, important. That's so great. I, yeah, there's we're all getting so many different things out of it where we're able to go out and enjoy the world in new and different ways. And that's something yeah. that it's never just... That's why I don't like to call myself a fan because that just seems limited. It's like, I'm enjoying this. And I'm enjoying talking to you guys about it and meeting new people and talking to them about it. And it gives me new perspectives on shit in general. Yeah. And yeah. so I may be you know, like, like you just said, you're able to enjoy these other things that you're reading in new ways. That is so cool. Yeah. Well, I, I saw a that's thing so on... fucking cool. I, I saw a thing on Twitter this week about how shitty it is sometimes when collections of comics come out and they only credit the writer on the cover so it says like you know and and i'm not saying anything about scott snyder but it says scott snyder's justice league right well what about all the people people. that are doing the art and the color and everything for that book you know what i mean like they deserve to be on the cover too you know so i think that i think they just didn't want to clutter up the cover and they just put the biggest name right but still you know what i mean i think that um I think that it is important to recognize everybody who, who sure. oh, yeah. the, the collaboration of all the different, um, not just the artists, but also the colorists and the letterer. That has to be like a legal thing, though. That's got to be, we, hmm. we just, that's got to be a behind the scenes thing where it's right. like, oh, that shit. Like, if we ask someone who is actually entrenched in this industry, they'd be like, oh, yeah, well, you wouldn't believe all the fucking shit that goes into that. Right. You know, so right. it's probably stuff we don't even see. But, but it's important to, I think it's cool, like you said, to know. Yeah. The te- who all's working on it, and then you can, you know, when I read stuff, and I enjoy it in, in a different way, in new ways, and it's, um, 
yeah, super good. Anyway, sorry to get off on that. No, you're fine. That's great. No, it's important to, um, I, I think this is a great discussion. And um, we got the cover here for visitor number one. So one thing that was cool, you know, there's a Gosh Comics in London. I've ordered stuff from them um, a couple times. And when this issue came out, they actually had signed issues by Paul Grist. And so I ordered one oh, nice. and I have a signed issue by Paul Grist of, of this issue one uh, for the visitor. And then there's also a really amazing Mignola variant for this cover, which I'll share online when I do my post for the week. We open the story in East Bromwich, although it doesn't tell you that. It'll be revealed to us on the next page. But I want to talk about these two opening panels because it says, look, Roger. And then we see the lilies. And I think like we can't like... That has connotation for us, sure. even though maybe they're not talking about Roger the homunculus or whatever. But I don't know, like immediately opening this thing, you're just kind of like, what's going to what is this right. going to mean? You know what I mean? It just really kind of pulls you in from the beginning. And so that's something that really caught my eye when I started reading this. Well, when I first read it, it made me think of, um, look, Roger, a dead alien. Oh, um, you're right, Aubrey. Oh my God, you're absolutely so, right. And so I thought maybe it was kind of like because uh, the way this, well, the way that we see the story unfold, the first time we actually get to see the visitor is like when he's a dead alien. So maybe this yeah. is kind of like a recap. But I like the way. But then I also was like, oh wait, he's probably calling that guy Roger, and he's talking about the flowers. So I thought that was a really cool way to fit it all together. Oh, Aubrey, I'm so glad that you're on the show right now because I feel so stupid I didn't catch that connection, but you're absolutely right. Look, Roger, a dead alien. That's exactly what it's calling back to. That's wonderful, man. Thank you for catching that. And that's why it's a book club. There you and go. That's why yeah. it's friendship and you talk about it together and then you <laughs> talk to you, John. And we see these two soldiers. They're talking and they're wondering what they're doing there. And we also see this other soldier. He's like in the shadows and he looks over and he sees Lady Cynthia and she's talking to Broom and Malcolm Frost. And here's where you should realize, oh, okay, we're in Seat of Destruction, right? At the very beginning this scene. very well done. Yeah. yeah. So I know we're not even past like the first page yet. So just real quick, these, when we open up on these, these flowers. Yeah. I've bought in. Right. I'm, I mean, this. That's what I was saying. I bought yeah. into this. Just kind of uh, flipping through these first few pages here. I wish I could express myself a little more eloquently, but I'll do my best. Like, if there were a word that could describe the way that you see things, but like the equivalent of mouthfeel, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> I but, feel. No, it's like, but it's not like a. It's it's more like the. It's not really just about style or just about aesthetic. It's 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 just something well, that hits it's you. It's how you draws you in. It's something that hits you about what this artist is doing, and I don't want to say. Oh, well, elements of it are similar to Mignola's style, but, you know, because I don't want to be insulting, like, of course, this person has their own style. It's obvious. It's not, you wouldn't necessarily say it's Mignola-esque at all, but it's in that way, it makes you feel kind of, you forget, I, I forget I'm looking at art. Okay. I'm experiencing yeah. <laughs> this yeah. in a totally immersive way. It's a completely coherent. Yeah. It's a, like a language. Okay. It's amazing. And so it's, you know, the whatever the mouthfeel of it <laughs> is so satisfying. Yeah. And the, so there's just something about it. I cannot put my finger on it, on like why it's good. If I could, if I could articulate myself any better, if I had an art degree, maybe I could tell you why it is good. Right. So, I mean, I run into this so often. I think I've done this on, I don't even know how many episodes now where I'm like, I don't know why it's <laughs> awesome. It's, it's pretty awesome. But just 
every you know the little details I could get into where the shadows are and what the shape of things are and the expressions and articulations and the the movements and how dynamic it is and the way that the panels flow and the way that they're constructed and the way the colors are. and so it's just there's so many elements that go into it I feel like such a bonehead for just saying oh it's real good <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should justify it somehow but there's so much about this that is just so yeah. it seems so effortless and I know it's not I know a lot of work went into it but it's Ah, I just fucking love it. So that's my little rant about how much I love the art and the storytelling here. Yeah, and um, I, I really love how they put us back in this moment because it's like we get to see another perspective on a scene that is very familiar to us at this point in which we've seen kind of rehashed a couple different times. I went back and reread these first, like, I don't know, 10 pages, like yeah. three times before I continued with the story just because I was like... I want to make sure I have taken all of this in. Right. Because there's so much happening. But they do such a good job of telling... of comp Like, we've talked about this before. Getting so much information into it and still being pleasantly coherent. Right, yeah. It's so... It's such Letting a Letting the art do the storytelling. It's, such, it's so skillful. And Lady Cynthia, she talks to Broom and Malcolm Frost. And she says that she senses other spirits there. A priest and a nun... Their shades are with us. They have a message. They say something is coming. And so she said the exact same thing. I actually went back to Seed of Destruction to look at that, and she says the same thing there. And remember, she's mentioning Hellboy's brother and sister, basically, the the ones from his human mother. Right. You know, their ghosts were there in the background, and she was sensing them right before all this went down. We see this shadowed soldier, and he removes this shape from his pocket. And I was trying to figure out what to call this. They call it a prism, right? Sure. Um, in mathematical mm -hmm. literature, uh, anything that is a polyhedron, it, they call it a cuboid. Something that's like a all the sides are a rectangle. But we'll just call it a prism because that's what they call it here. But I did look that is up. Is there a reason it couldn't be called a prism technically? Well, I know aesthetically we can call it a prism. Yeah, a, mean, right. It would be a rectangular prism. Yeah. Right. Suddenly there's this boom. Could this be the very first right hand of Doom hey. Boom? I don't know. Maybe he booms the did thing. Did he land on I don't his... know. Well, no, we don't know. We don't get to see it. <laughs> it's one thing that I did think about. And so we play out this very familiar scene, right? We see Grist and Crabtree recreate that very awesome panel where baby Hellboy appears in the fire. We should have like a, a running list of how many artists have I know. I should do that. <laughs> to do this scene and we get that familiar dialogue remember this dialogue was used in that last mysterious page from hellboy in hell shoot it kill it it's a demon come from hell come to destroy us all malcolm frost says doesn't look too dangerous to me professor lady cynthia says it looks like a little boy but in the middle of this in the familiar scene we're also inserted the soldier with the prism i love that's that so shit. cool right i love that shit Aubrey, how do you feel about that shit where you go back to a scene you've seen a million times, but something else was happening the whole time. You didn't know about it. Oh, I love it. I yeah. mean, it's, but it actually got me thinking, um, and, and, um, you can cut this part out if you want to, but the, um, I also follow, uh, Ryan Otley on Instagram and recently he posted like somebody wanted him to, for a commission, he wanted them to recreate this one page out of Batman's Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller one. And so I was thinking like an idea for a commission would be like, Hey, recreate this Hellboy opening scene for me huh, in your own okay, yeah. That would be cool, yeah. 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 I, I recently saw something like somebody, God, I forget what the artist was, but it was amazing. They redid the 
that scene from year one where Batman comes out and he's like, you've all eaten well or whatever. Remember where he comes out of the shadows? Yeah, that would be amazing. There are people who have whole themed sketchbooks where they go around to all their favorite artists and they commission um, sketches of like the same, like you just said, like the same scene from their favorite, whatever it's their favorite scene from any comic book or splash page or character in in that artist style and that is really interesting i think that is a super interesting uh thing to think about because having that anchor point of it's this scene yeah but you can do it in any any way you want is and you get to see all this array of how this person imagines right. this moment and how that person imagines this moment is fascinating i think that's a great idea that's super cool and and going right along with that you know robertson and grist they add this element where broom comes out and he's like wait don't shoot yeah and i don't think we saw this in the original you know i like this like they all have their guns pointed on hellboy and he runs out there in front and he's like don't shoot and it looks like the soldier is getting ready to, to use the prism as well and then he says hellboy and then that bottom panel where he says that that's an exact you know, even the panel layout and the way that they have Broom in the panel is exactly like the Mignola panel from Seed of Destruction. And then so we see the soldier put the prism away. They do the photo. And I love that we get this little detail here where, uh, you know, it's what they do. we're very familiar with the photo, right? We've seen this moment a lot of times, Even too. in the movie. Yeah, so we've seen this yeah. moment so many times as well. You know, there's no need to be frightened. Everything's going to be fine, I promise. And the little detail of him just... That little eep. Yeah, he's just like so, a little monkey baby. He's just thing. a little tiny yeah. baby. I feel like uh, that right there is we're seeing the moment right after the photo. It's like we we've seen it all the way up to the photo, but this is yeah. the yeah. But that's, afterwards, that's great. And I I I love ugh, the whole idea of this comic is kind of on that. I'm I'm a fan of of any kind of I want to say directorial style. I suppose okay. like you can direct this right. I that's. It's so cinematic. I mean, mm-hmm. you would almost have to... Have, I guess the writer is the director, but then sure. also don't they communicate with the artist and they're kind of also the director. They're like the cinematography director and they yeah. kind of... So multiple people will fill that role. But I feel like directorially, they're holding on to... The theme of this these books is you're holding on to these moments much longer than you usually would. Normally, yeah. you would have cut a long time ago. Like, sure. like you just said, Aubrey, you, we've seen this moment so many times but only up until that moment yeah and everyone's like okay cut that's where the scene ends next scene and no not here we we get a little bit more yeah a little bit more like you're almost a fly on the wall yeah and it, it breathes a little bit and in those in those in-between breaths you have whole stories and it's so beautiful when they're told so well yeah and they're told right instead of it just being like a throwaway thing and i love that they took the time to let this character breathe you've got him kind of moving farther away and then the panel's empty and it's very that moment gets stretched out right further and further and you can tell so many stories in those little gaps and i i like that we get that moment like after where you would have said cut it's still going the story yeah. is still we still see what happens it's after like oh that. we get to see something new now that is so great yeah i love that so that's an that's an excellent observation aubrey i really like that the soldier he disappears into the woods he removes his uniform he grips the prism and he transforms. He's one of those aliens, right? And we've seen these aliens. I got the visitor. So excited when I saw. This. 
Fans of the series had been wondering what those mysterious panels meant way back in Seed of Destruction. Remember when Rasputin cracked the Ogdruja had, we saw those aliens monitoring. And now, 23 years later in the publication history, we're getting some context. The visitor, he communicates using that prism. He reports to someone and he says he couldn't carry out the assignment. When he arrived, he is just a child, sir, the visitor reports. His commander says it's not a child, it's Anungan Rama, the great destroyer. But the visitor says his nature is not yet revealed. He is his mother's son, as well as his father's after all. Do you remember this prism? Do you remember where we saw it before? Yeah, well, we saw it in uh, Conquer Worm, right? Yeah. And then we also saw it in that mysterious vision that Jiang had. I remember in reading when we were reading Conqueror Worm, he's like, here, this prism will help you against the, the Conqueror Worm. And before we got to see him use it, Von Clint broke it. We're like, how, what the fuck was that going to do? Right, yeah. <laughs> and then I love how that this comic, you know, explains it without saying, well, this is what that prism does. Right. Sure, sure, yeah. But just like Danielle always says, it lets the, and it looks like it has a lot of functions because here he's kind of using it as a communicator. But it's a show, know? don't tell. No one's ever, like Aubrey just said, no one's ever explicitly like, yeah. do you have your prism thingy? Don't forget <laughs> it does this, that, and the other. There's none of that bullshit. It's trusting the reader to be able to follow a basic fucking story right. and enjoy it for what it is. And so, yeah, no, I, I love that you brought that up, that it's, um, we are, we, we get to see this and we're like, oh, and that kind of fulfills all our curiosity just from seeing somebody using it. Yeah. Is that's totally like, okay, cool. All yeah. Right, I'm yeah. on board. Keep going. You know? And I love Gris and Crabtree's work in recreating the aliens, too, because they were only in one panel. But they we saw all this where he was hooked up to the thing. It's and so they're, good. And they're out there in the void, and we see the spaceship, and they're on the screen talking to each other. Like, we saw all that. It was just for one panel. Hook all um, this directly to my veins. Yes. <laughs> I'm so fucking excited to be reading this. The visitor says, the future is still in motion. There's still hope for him. Hope for redemption. He's an innocent. He cannot be blamed for the circumstances of his birth. And so his commander says, oh, well, I question the wisdom of your decision. But I do want to talk about there's this one panel where it's split and there's just that droplet of blood. Right. So I thought that that was interesting. We'll see more of that. But this kind of theme that they lay out in this first issue is just really great. And the way it's kind of put in there, I, I, I imagine it's cinematically where you would just cut to just blackness and a drop yeah. of blood while they're talking. And you're like, OK, what does that mean? That's some weird symbolism there. Uh, earlier when I said there are elements of this that somewhat remind me of Mignola's work as well. I wasn't trying to say like, oh, this person's style is copying it. There's nothing like that. Just kind of the feel of maybe the storytelling elements. Some of the elements in here also somewhat remind me a little bit of Guy Davis' work occasionally. So, and that's only because those are prominent BPRD and Hellboy artists that I recognize. Right. His body language and... The fact that the panels flow so smoothly and just kind of the art looks really simple, quote unquote. Yeah, it's, I know what you it's, mean. It's I'm not trying to say it's it's quote unquote simple, but in an elegant way, in yeah. a way that allows it to just be what it is without all this extra shit distracting your eye. It's yeah. per, it's perfectly everything's the composition is great, and so I guess that's what I was trying to say. Sorry, it's so rambly. I have a hard time articulating what I'm trying to talk about sometimes. That's okay. When it comes to art, it's got so many simplistic elements to it that probably aren't if you're the one drawing it. Well, but it looks effortless. If you're the and, one and looking at it, and that is the that is the beauty of yeah, it. Yeah. So 
The commander says that they'll be out of range soon. If the visitor doesn't complete the mission, he'll be stuck on Abjuda Earth. This is what they also called it in Seat of Destruction. And the visitor says, he'll remain and monitor Hellboy. If he's wrong, he'll correct his mistake. I hope for all our sakes that you're making the right decision, the commander says. I think it's interesting how they trust him, too. Sure. They're not like, no, this was your mission. I'm going to send somebody else down there, and they're going to do it. They're like, okay, we're well, going to give you a chance. You're taking a different fucking approach. Yeah, I thought you? that was interesting. It, it just says something about the whole nature of these kind yeah. of people, these aliens. This also brings up thoughts of when they're talking about Oh, it's this is the Anun Un Rama. This is the great destroyer. He's gonna destroy shit. Right. But we know now, like, yeah, good. He's gonna destroy, He's gonna destroy hell. Yeah. Yeah. So even they, who, as we're gonna learn, are these to us, to our specific lifestyle, they would seem immortal. Right. They. Right. It seems like they wouldn't age. So they are this kind of super long lifespan. You think that they would be able to see maybe even the creation and destruction of planets and galaxies. So that you would think that they would have a more nuanced perspective of this great destroyer thing of like, oh, such is the cycle of life and death and the creation and destruction of the universe that it's infinite and it goes on and that is the nature and that is the way and that is, it's natural and that's how it's supposed to be and that's good and that's he's the destroyer but maybe he's the destroyer of this all things have to end for things to begin birth cannot happen without this and that and so it's death and whatever but they don't they're still caught up in the he's the great destroyer bullshit well one thing that is really going to bake your noodle yeah right we talked about this on a previous episode was what's really going to bake your noodle later on is Would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? They talk about how some of the Watchers went down into hell Mm -hmm. and some of them went into the cosmos, into the void. And so some people have theorized that these are what they turned into. Uh Uh-huh. So, you know, I agree with that theory. So then they have a different point of view also with the whole Ogdra Jihad and with... uh, You think they're overcompensating? For the watchers that were down in hell? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's that's that whole left hand, right hand thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get Mark Tweedo in here to, sure. to straighten it all out for us. I just think it's interesting that the, even they, even these, you know, outer space watchers. Yeah. Are still hung up on this, like, label, man. Sure. <laughs> when it's, it's not about that at all, man. So. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, they are hung up on the whole... Uh, you know, he's the story of words. But I do like the fact that, you know, the one guy who's down there, he's like, no, this is a baby. And then <laughs> then, it, and then the crew's all like, all right, we'll trust your judgment. Right. Sure, right, yeah. right. And he's like, and he's like, you know, if something does happen, I'll take care of it. But if it doesn't, then he's, you know, maybe he's a force for good, you know. So, I mean, I like the fact that, you know, they're not completely thinking in black and white terms. Right. You know, they, they do have a thought that, wait a second. Maybe maybe this isn't what I'm th- thinking. Let me observe before I make any rash decisions. Yeah, statement. yeah. And that even kind of calls into question some of our ideas of good and bad. Exactly. It's like, you know, you think of destruction as being bad, but sometimes destruction is good because mm-hmm. that is the natural state of what's happening. Like the protagonist of this story, maybe because we're supposed to put ourselves in that shoe of like, look, evaluate. If you learn something new, you can act on that new stuff that you've learned. And so that's kind of, we see that theme all throughout, especially when we get to 
Yeah, well, after after he loses contact, he says, well, we shall see. Yeah. And again, we get this droplet of blood panel. I feel like that's the mood panel. You know what I mean? You were talking about how it kind of takes the storytelling and all that kind of stuff. You right? know, we're talking about the lilies and we're talking about that. I mean, that's that's where my mind went. And was to the lilies. I, I love these flashbacks that we get. We get like one page flashbacks. So we get 1947, and we already know what happened in 1947. We read that story, but now we get where they're going to have to move to connect. Do we really have to connect? Connect Connecticut. Connecticut. <laughs> and we see little Hellboy with a little puppy Mac. Yeah, a little puppy Mac. Everybody loves puppy Mac. Oh yeah. And he's worried about having to move from New Mexico where he's been since he all this time since he was a kid. And Broom says, I know that change is difficult, but it's a fact of life. It's how we adapt to change that defines us. And we see the visitor in his human form. He's like listening. You know I what love I mean? that so much. It's I mean, it bears repeating. Change can be difficult, but it's just a, it's just is. And it's how we adapt to change that yeah. defines us. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it might be the only immutable truth. Right. You could build your whole life just around that idea if you wanted to, and you wouldn't be wrong to do it. And then we get 1948, where Hellboy remembered that he was hanging out with Archie already, and this was, I guess, before he cut off the horns, and he's trying to learn how to ride a bike, and he keeps falling over. Super cute. I'm never going to get the hang of this, Archie, he says. It just takes practice, Hellboy, Margaret says. Give it time. Margaret's right, kiddo, Archie says. Besides... Nothing worth doing comes easy. Nothing worth doing comes easy. Another fantastic yeah. life lesson that until you actually live what he's talking about and you've been entrenched in that for a couple of years, yeah. you're like, oh shit, this is what it means. And this the, is what that fucking means. And the visitor's there and he's watching it too. You know, He's seen all these learning moments. We get this other one from 1950, and we see Hellboy. He's older, right? And he's looking at all the magazines. He's got Mac there, and Mac's older, too. And he says, hey, you got that new issue of Weird Tales in yet? And so we've talked about Weird Tales a little bit. Obviously, they had the Hellboy Weird Tales. Weird Tales is an American fantasy and horror pulp magazine founded by Heinenberger and Lansinger in late 1922. The first issue appeared on newsstands in February 18, 1923, and the first editor, Edwin Bard, printed early work by H.P. Lovecraft, C. Barry Quinn, and Clark Ashton Smith, all who would go on to become popular writers, but within a year, the magazine was in financial trouble. Call of Cthulhu was published in Weird Tales, as well as early stories from Robert E. Howard, who we've referenced a ton of times in this series. Hellboy's looking for the magazine, and he says... If you don't see it, I ain't got it. Oh, uh, okay. Thanks anyway, I guess, Hellboy says, and he walks off. And the visitor's there observing that, too. And again, we get those droplets of blood motif in the background. That must have been a situation where he kind of picked up on Hellboy's route that he's normally walks. Uh, right, yeah. Max on, and that's why he's at that bench, because otherwise... Right. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, he, he's following, and he sits down at the bench, he looks... And he gets up and he goes, no, he must have, yeah, like, yeah. He, by now he's got kind of a, he's he's following his kind of routine almost, I suppose. So I got, you get the impression that all this is happening, all these details, just in the background of your mind. They trust that you're going to fill in these blanks. Right. And they don't just specifically tell you. It's, it's all these little series of vignettes. I love it. It's so great. Show the passage of time, show why he's observing him, show what he's observing and trusting you 
to know all this and just take it in without explicitly fucking explaining every little goddamn thing, which I appreciate more than I can say. So what is he looking for here? Is he is he trying to see what magazine Hellboy's interested in? Is he going for like the frisky? I think it's just a slice or, of life. Or, 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 is it, or is it like I, he, he wants to see how Hellboy's going to respond to this guy being kind of rude to him? If you don't see it, I ain't got it. I, I don't think it's either of that. I just think he's observing Hellboy in his day-to-day life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Character the person. Like, you know, he, he's probably going to follow him next to go to like the, the sandwich shop sure. and be like, oh, if he orders that egg salad, that's evil (laughs) beans on toast evil no but that's that's maybe where he pauses the longest on his walk when he's walking mac maybe that's where he take his takes his lunch break like aubrey just said you know that's that's something that where it's just easy to kind of see an interaction and we cut to 1953 and i love this because we just read this story yeah and so this is where in beyond the fences where he's with zhang and stegner and all the little kids are there and this little kid goes, wow. And Hellboy looks at him and he winks. And then we see the visitors in the background watching that too. So starting to see how Hellboy is interacting with these other little kids. Yeah. And so as you flip through these four vignettes, the consistent right. thing is the background, the black panel with the blood. So I think that that's really interesting and just um, that mood setting for the story. In there. And that's the thing is that when I was first reading this, it really was and i know it's if you just are staring at the page to just now we're looking at this page and we're looking at all the elements of the page but when you're reading the story at least when i was reading the story that was very subliminal i didn't outright catch that and at the very last thing i'm i'm not looking i'm not even looking at that the way that the pages are composed i'm looking at all these panels and then i actually had to go back and and look at that after i had read it and i saw that and i was like wait a fucking second yeah and i flipped through them very quickly to see that progression but yeah the first time i read it it was almost like not a thing that i even really paid that much attention to so much is happening which is such an obvious thing dripping blood that's a very that should be a prominent imagery yeah but for me i had to go back and look at that so that's i think that's another thing that's very subtle that i liked it also ties back into the very first conversation. The guy's talking about like when the blood drops, the, these flowers pop up. And yeah. so, and now we've been watching the blood drip through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. that's what I was, uh, the first time I saw that drop of blood that was bisecting that guy's face, I immediately thought of those lilies. Yeah. So that's, that's very interesting that you say that too, too yeah. because I'm glad I'm not the only one. That's, that's really interesting that you, that you also yeah. thought of that. That's cool. And then we cut to England 1954 and we catch the visitor watching the events of Hellboy Nature of the Beast. This was a short story that we discussed way back in episode five of the podcast and actually went back and looked at the story and the dialogue is exactly the same. You know, they're giving Hellboy this assignment to go kill this dragon. But you know, from a different, you're seeing it from yeah. his perspective. He's looking in uh, on the window. He's looking in from the outside. And so right. you're kind of seeing that. Uh, it didn't click to me that we'd, we'd seen this. I thought, I know we'd seen something similar to this, but I was just like all the way back to episode five. No wonder. I didn't yeah, remember. it's in the yeah. short stories one omnibus. I recommend going back and looking at it again too. Um, but I'll post some side-by-side comparisons this week. And they're telling Hellboy about how the monk was gravely hurt. And because of the nature of the place and the nature of the man, wherever his blood fell, lilies grew. What's going to blow your mind is I actually remembered this, which oh, I don't remember awesome. anything ever. So, But the, I, I like that it's it's from this perspective of this guy looking right. at what's happening now. 
So they bring up the lilies again. They bring up all this shit. So you know what's about to happen. He's got the spear and everything. Right. And uh, the spear of Earl of Warwick that was used against the dragon. And I love this part where they say, now get thee to St. Leonard's Wood and there do the thing. <laughs> I just like that phrasing a lot. And Hellboy's like, I got it. I got it. And he says the same thing in the other comic, too. So I really like that. And I'm going to tell you that whenever I want you to go do something, I'm going to say, get thee to St. Leonard's Wood. <laughs> and do the thing. So one thing I think is interesting here is, you know, we see Hellboy in the woods and he says, I've seen a haunted chair and a talking mongoose, but I'd have bet good money there were no dragons. And then in the actual nature of the beast, he goes, maybe not. And the bird sings. Uh-huh. Remember, there's yeah. a little bird singing. Oh, and yeah. He's like, oh, maybe not. So Hellboy's walking through looking for the dragon and we see the visitor is following him. And then he encounters the dragon. So all of this is from Nature of the Beast. The dragon wraps up Hellboy um, to the statue. And then it looks like the visitor's getting ready to use the prism. Yeah. You know, is he going to use it to help Hellboy? Or does he think that, oh, this is where he's going to become the Beast of the Apocalypse? You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know. Like, is he getting ready? What is he getting ready to do there? You know, he. I guess he just wants to be ready in case something happens. And so in the Nature of the Beast comic, what we reveal is that the serpent cracks the statue and then the statue falls down. But I was like, wouldn't it be weird if like the visitor had something to do with that? I don't know. I mean, what did you think? What did you that's think? That's exactly what I thought happened. Yeah. Was like he brought out the thing, he cracked the statue, and it has it fall. And it also made me think of that very first Hellboy story, the one at the gas station where that sign fell yeah. on the, the mutant dog thing. And it's just like you know, Hellboy got lucky. Maybe the visitor, you know, assisted there too. Right. It really feels like we're meant to think that that is what happened. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe that's just. I was gonna say maybe that's just my interpretation, but it seems like it's all three of our interpretations. I don't yeah. know. That could be a. That could be a. Hey, book club members. Yeah. Let us know what you think What's about that. What's going on? And of course, the statue falls down. It kills the dragon. Well, that was a close one. Hellboy says, and his arm is bleeding from the battle. And as he walks off, the visitor is there with the prism. He follows the trail of blood, and he sees the lilies growing. I had thought that the child might be saved, he says, but it never occurred to me until that moment that the child might grow into a force for good in his own right, standing to protect the people of this world from the horrors that are to come. I shall have to watch how he progresses. And so we see the visitor witnesses the lilies bloom from his blood. And that's another thing that we've never really seen. Like, I think it's so cool that we see the little leaves coming up out of the blood and grow into flowers. That is so cool. He's looking at that like, hey, that's a thing. And that seals it because the lilies seal that for us, the reader. And so we are seeing this through his eyes now. And so he's kind of a vehicle for us to... You know, it's reinforcing all of that and in this first issue here. It's, right. it's kind of setting us up to be very much on this guy's side because he's like us in a way kind of a thing. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. And, and if you well, think back to Nature of the Beast, I think something that's interesting is the Osiris Club are also watching it in a crystal ball. Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember that. Right. And then when this happens at the end, they're like, oh, well, maybe maybe we'll have to see what's going to happen. Sure, yeah. You know what I mean? So they were like, oh, he passed the test. So, like, the whole thing was a test for them. And then it's just interesting how these two points of views are kind of looking at this same and that information. And to, to determine if he was the Excalibur guy. They were trying to, yeah, yeah. look at so some of that. Yeah, or the, the nature of the man. Yeah. yeah. And then also, um, I feel like this is the visitor kind of saying to himself he doesn't have to keep a constant watch over him sure. anymore. Because 
as we're going forward in the next issue, we're seeing that he has a completely different life than somebody who's just following Hellboy around. Yeah. yeah. And so we get this ominous cover to chapter two. You know, it looks like the visitor's coming after this woman. <laughs> I just really like how they frame all this. And we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more. She's like, what are you doing? Come on. <laughs> I don't know if this isn't everybody's issue because I don't know if they're reading the oh, same. Oh, the page breaks, yeah. I don't know if they're reading the same like version. Or We're looking at the trade I... paperback. Yeah, and so this armadillo on this car is great. Sorry if you're, I mean, because we're... We're all in Texas, so that's to me, was a very cute little panel. Yeah, and we open in Austin, Texas in 1964. Austin is the state capital of Texas, an inland city bordering the Hill Country region. And that's kind of cool because we're in Texas too, right? And we see the visitor. He's making a collect call on a pay phone. You know, do people understand what collect calls were? I like, don't if know we have if any, they even <laughs> understand what this telephone booth is. Right. So, if you didn't have money, you know, you could ask for the person receiving the call to pay for the charges, and that's what he's doing here, right? And the phone didn't even have a screen on it. It was just <laughs> you put it up to your ear. And here he gives his human name, Michael Mathers. So I thought this was kind of interesting. I couldn't find a reference to michael mathers except that the rapper eminem has a brother named michael mathers but i don't think that's what they're referencing i i think that they were more referencing the same letter and the first and last name a lot of superheroes at this time bruce banner peter parker scott summers matt murdoch Otto octavius there's a ton more even newer heroes like miles morales and kamala khan have those alliteration in their names i think it's just don't forget the best one j jonah jameson (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) junior (laughs) <laughs> oh man that's yeah that's a, that's a good one i think i think it's just meant to be uh you know your very generic middle yeah. of the road uh not right. threatening guy's name like uh john johns right there you go it's very it's very background yeah guy and apparently stan lee he said that he started giving the marvel characters alliterative names with the idea being that he could if he could remember one name it would help him remember what the other name was okay trying to remember the first and last name of all the sure. different characters was too taxing right. but if but if they were the same and he could remember parker then he could probably remember that peter the first parker. name was peter yeah he's not wrong and we cut over to where he's calling bridgeport connecticut This is a historic seaport city in the U.S. state of Connecticut and the largest city. And this woman answers, and her name is Ruby Mathers. (laughs) And she accepts the charges. Hey, baby, she responds. I love the body language, too, of her. My mom's name is Ruby. Oh, cute. Yeah. It's a cute name. Michael tells her that he'll be heading home soon. He has a bit more business to finish up. I love you too, he says. And then we hear a scream right on schedule, Michael (laughs) says. So he hangs up the phone. He's like looking at his little book. I love that. And they're like, look at the size of it. What is it? (laughs) And we see this giant armadillo crushing the car. This panel is super cute to me. I don't know. It's just a very like. It's it's great. Yeah. It seems like he's like, hey, guys, are there any worms in here? I feel like the, the, the armadillo is like slamming down on the car like, I am sick and tired of you running over my brothers and sisters. Oh, no. <laughs> Retribution time. Armadillo's revenge. People. Nice. I got some fun facts about armadillos. It means little armored one in Spanish. Oh, baby. They are New World placental mammals in the order Singulata. They are the only surviving families in this order along with anteaters and sloths. 
All species are native to the Americas. Armadillos are characterized by a leathery armor shell and sharp claws for digging. They have short legs but can move quite quickly. The average length of an armadillo is 75 centimeters or 30 inches, including the tail. There's a giant armadillo, but it only grows up to 150 centimeters or 59 inches. Only. And, and there's a pink fairy armadillo. And it has a length of 13 to 15 centimeters or 5 to 6 inches. When threaded by a predator, they frequently roll up into a ball. And they're all very cute. Yeah. They d- they'll dig up your garden, but they're they're cutie pies. And we see Hellboy's already on the scene. So the visitor, he, I guess he anticipated that. And he's got another agent who Hellboy calls Vic. He says, they grow them bloody big down here, don't they, mate? That wasn't funny the first time, Vic, Hellboy says, but keep trying, I guess. I love that. That wasn't. Keep trying, I guess. And Hellboy. A little bit of ribbon, yeah, a little rasin, yeah. Yeah. A little bit of of the boys. Hellboy commands the others to manage the crowd. I have got this, he says. Hey, ugly, I'm talking to you. I like how he's like, I've got this. Hey, ugly, I'm talking to you. The other guy's (laughs) sitting in the middle of the street. Yeah, so we see. The guy, Vic, he's like sitting in a meditative pose and he conjures up a gorilla with ectoplasm. Sure, but again, the middle of the street might not be the best place to to do that, but okay. Well, I don't think there's going to be any traffic with the giant Hopefully armadillo <laughs> in the middle of the road. Uh, I feel like it was. I felt like he was more summoning like his kind of like spirit animal kind of thing. Oh, okay, spirit maybe that's what it is. Animal is not a phrase we should use. It has been decried by many Native Americans. We should not be using that. A familiar, perhaps. And so they fight the armadillo, but like the armadillo isn't the focus of the scene. Right. It's kind of more the visitor watching what's happening here. And we see the other agents, they're like, they're doing the crowd control. They say, Hellboy handles stuff like this all the time. There's nothing to worry about. And so the visitor, Michael Mathers, he takes out his little book and he says, the subject has assumed a position of leadership and has earned the trust and loyalty of his associates and subordinates. And then we see the aftermath where Hellboy's like, and stay down. I love that. That's kind of cute. Yeah. So this guy knew that this was gonna happen right yeah and he's just waiting for it to happen he wants to see what hellboy's gonna do i guess yeah or like if he needs help or something i don't know yeah i don't know well he's like noting that people are loyal to him now and he's leading people right so maybe he got information on like where the bprd was sending him right okay you know he's got uh kind of an inside track on their missions and stuff so we see the visitor he's on a bus now he's on a greyhound bus i used to ride the greyhound bus all the time before i had a car Um, because i'd go back and forth between houston and san antonio where my family live and so the visitor he's writing in his little notes there and he says that hellboy's lived among these people for 20 orbital rotations and beyond his physiology there has been little evidence of his infernal nature but even if his human heritage is dominant it does not necessarily follow that he will reach his full potential it has been my experience that goodness is not innate to humanity but must be learned and as, as soon as he writes that he sees these guys they're like making fun of a homeless guy geez what a loser they say and so he's like uh, case yeah, in point right fucked up and he, uh, goodness not cool. is not innate yeah 
And then he has a flashback, right? We flashback to 1958, Oakville, Tennessee. Oakville, Tennessee was a community in Tennessee located to the west of the current site of the Memphis International Airport, and now it's part of Memphis. And in this flashback, you know, we can tell that it's a flashback by the colors. You know, Crabtree is doing a good job in going along with that theme that we've seen in the other books. And we see these ruffians, right? And they see the visitor there. He's like sleeping on the ground. And they tell him, wake up, Rummy. And they're like getting ready to beat him with sticks. They're like throwing fruit at him and all this stuff. They say, we don't like stinking bums in our town, see? So beat it. And he's like, oh, I don't mean any harm to you. And suddenly there's someone calls out, hey. And it's Ruby, right? And she's in like a maid's outfit. So I guess she was at her job. And she's like, you guys get out of here. There's no call for messing with that poor man. Get home before I call your folks. And then this one guy's like, like my pop would listen to anything a colored girl said. Yeah. Damn. So that's kind of, you know, the visitor is seeing that this kind of stuff exists. But then he's also kind of being subjected to because they think that he's a homeless person. And then here comes this person to save him, right? Or to stand up for him. That's fucked up. She says, don't worry about them, friend. Some folks are born without a drop of kindness in them, I guess. Come on, get up off the ground. And she says, get you something to eat. My name's Ruby. Who might you be? A friend, he says. Back on the bus with Michael, they make a rest stop in Terrell, Texas. Terrell is a city in Kaufman County, Texas, east of Dallas, Texas. Have you ever been there to Terrell, Texas? I have never been to Terrell, Texas. What about you, Aubrey? Don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to different places when I'm going to places, but I wouldn't, I don't know. So I guess technically, no, I've never been there, but I may have been through there, but I wouldn't, couldn't tell you if I've ever been there. And we see the visitor, he uses the prism again so here is it like another functionality where it's like a homing beacon or it tells him where stuff is happening because he pulls it out and it like glows and makes a sound it does a lot of stuff yeah and then he stays behind he doesn't get back on the greyhound bus instead it, he just lets it go and he stays there it reminded me of the pk meter from um Ghostbusters. oh yeah yeah maybe that's what it's kind of doing and we see Michael, he goes into the woods, and he observes a man in a red robe. It looks like he's about to sacrifice a calf, and the calf has all these familiar-looking sigils drawn all over it that we've kind of seen in these comics before. The man in the robe speaks to a crowd of locals about the 369 who were spawned. He has been granted a vision, a glorious future for them if they have the courage to accept it. So we know what this is all about, right? We know about the 369 and all this kind of stuff. As the man in the robe stabs the calf, it starts to transform into a monster. That hasn't happened before, the robed guy says, who they call Pastor. And so we see it's kind of mutating into this thing. Form and substance, it says, the monster when it forms. It has been so long. And again, they say Sancti Abjura. So we saw that Abjura being used by the aliens. And they're like, praise be, praise be. What are you monkeys gibbering about, he says. <laughs> it's such a, uh, I like that type of shit where it's, ah, I'm, I'm here I am. And everyone's yeah. like, oh yeah, we're worshiping you. What the fuck are you talking about? Right. <laughs> Do you not... Under, and he's like, yeah, they don't, they don't know what they did. They're just dumb. Uh, right. You know, you can, you can divert your attention. To me. Michael I'm, shows up. I'm in charge here. And he's like, they seem to have mistaken you for an entity that cares one whit what happens to them. And so these guys are like, oh, get him. That whole, that, this is great. 
And the monster's like, you're not like these other monkeys, are you? No, I'm not, Michael says. And he pulls out the prism. I love this energy blast here. Again, like you talked about how it's so minimal. Yeah. But it really could just conveys um, a lot without having to put a lot of words in there. So, of course, we see that he was able to, I guess, dispel this monster. And also, are all these other people dead or... I'm just going to assume that they're having a pleasant slumber. On my return journey, I encountered a group of humans in the midst of summoning an Ogdruhem spirit, he writes. Like a bunch of dumb fucking idiots. The matter was dealt with. We cut over to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and we see Ruby. She's walking into her house with a bag of groceries, and she's like, I expected you back yesterday. What's the matter? You miss your bus? How was your trip? And she goes into this room, and she sees the alien there. And it kind of sets it up to be like a shock or something right. and then the alien like he looks aggressive the way that they put his eyes he's just he's, had a long day though he's <laughs> he's speaking all this alien language and she almost has a face of concern and then she just goes english baby my tired old brain can't take that alien jibber jabber today and she kisses him which i think is just great it's because really cute. he looks so annoyed if, if you read it like if you're not sure what's going right i don't know it just kind of sets it, it up in a real tension out of the yeah, yeah it's really great because you're like what is happening here is this like an aggressive encounter but no he's just trying to talk to her in a language that she doesn't feel like listening to right now which i think is just really cute and she's like this is the mess you were dealing with down south that Borvier's came out again on top i suppose yes the visitor says he has proven to be most resourceful there was another matter i handled myself on the return trip but it was just as well and we see he's got a scrapbook of all of Hellboy's exploits. I love the headline here where it says, Hellboy and BPRD, best beast in the Lone Star State. I just like that it says Lone Star State. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's us. That's here in Texas. <laughs> the only time Texas has been referenced before was when we were a volcano in Hell on Earth. Right. right? So, yeah, I, th- I this is a little bit better press that I like. She says, well, the Parkers will be here for dinner at 7, so I need to get cooking. You best make yourself presentable before they get here. Yes, dear, the alien says. I love that panel. It's so good. This comic is so charming. And so I love this, too. As you turn the page, you know, he's there and he's in the alien form. And then in the top panel, it's the same position, but now he's Michael. Goodness is not inherent to humanity, perhaps, but in the best of them, there shines a special light. And he's like thinking this as he looks at Ruby, which I think is just really sweet. Our own people possessed such a light once long ago, though it is sometimes difficult to remember back that far. There has been so much darkness since then. And it, right when he says that, he clicks off the light. So again, the 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 dialogue and going along with the art and the pacing it just makes it for the the way that the art and the dialogue line up on these two pages i think is just very emotional and touching and we get to chapter three so on the cover of chapter three we see the alien visitor and then behind it we see that very familiar ogdruhem that we've seen a couple times we'll talk about that a little bit more we open this one in the ancient past right is this supposed to be like in the past, Aubrey? Uh, possibly. I mean, I, honestly, I couldn't tell. But it does have an ancient past look. But it could also just be people simulating an ancient past um, look. 
Right. Yeah. And we because I mean the 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 look of the stones. I mean they look like they're around a hinge, and it looks like you know what we would think of a hinge these days. So it doesn't look like what it would be like if it was it actually when it was first built or something like that. So it's hard to say. And we see these people. They're worshiping this Cthulhu-like creature. Okay, so we've seen this creature so many times at this point, right? Yep. Uh, good job, Mark Tweedell, for putting the reading order in this way, right? So we could have some context. We saw a monkey possessed by a vision of this statue in Witchfinder. We also saw the lobster take on someone worshiping it in Tony Masso's Finest Hour. We saw it in Hellboy in the BPRD 1952. And Zhang also had a vision of it in another one of the recent stories that we've read for Hellboy in the BPRD. And as these guys, you know, they're chanting in this kind of like frog language. We're used to that already, but they say Zarahem. So I think finally we have a name for it if it hasn't been revealed already because um, we've seen it so many times. And as they're worshiping it, it looks like they're getting ready to kill this man and this woman that they have chained up to the statue. And suddenly we see the alien approach with the prism. Suddenly we cut back to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and now it's 1978. So there's been a lot of years in between this. And Michael is still writing in his notebook. He says... Subject is not ready to shoulder the burden of protecting this world against the 369, but I remain confident that in time, he will be. Until then, I will continue to monitor his activities at a distance. Ruby watches TV, and she says, well, I'll be damned. I could have sworn she was dead. And on the TV, they report on the dramatic return of Ana Maria Fierro. She was the one behind the trouble with that self-help business, right? Ruby says... Yes, she was, Michael responds. I thought your boy put an end to it. So had I, Michael says. But I, I got to talk about this top panel because I don't even know what to say. I think this is so great how it's, excellent it's one panel, but it's three different motions and we kind of see him move across the living room. Like that it's kind of blew clear. my mind it's a little bit clear. when I was yeah. reading this. I was like, oh my God, that's genius how they did that. I just love yeah. this page. And I think the Great. storytelling is so amazing how they did that. It's I just, easy to get that wrong yeah. too, because I've seen examples of that not working mm -hmm. and not being, uh, it's kind of like not clear. And you're like, what's happening here? This is very clear. It's the storytelling is, is very clear here. There's something about Paul Griss storytelling that it just flows. You just get wrapped up in it and it just, it, it builds momentum. And it's panels like this that I think exemplify that really well. And so they mention this other mission. I don't know if we've seen this yet, but uh, he says he wasn't ready for the full truth about the cult's activities, but I was able to put him on the right trail. When he and his associates dealt with the inner circle, I thought the matter was settled. I had assumed that Fierro had died with the others in that conflagration. Clearly, I was mistaken. I'm guessing that's not good, Ruby says. I have work to do, Michael responds. And we also see they're like, and now return to our regularly scheduled program. Simon Kinsey investigates. And so I thought this might be a reference to Quincy M.E. This was an American mystery medical drama television series from Universal Studios that aired on NBC from October 1976 to May 1983. So it would have been going on at this time. Jack Klugman stars at the title role as a Los Angeles County medical examiner who routinely engages in police investigations. I remember my parents used to watch that, and I remember watching it with them, but the only thing I remember was there's a giant fucking queue at the beginning of the show. Right. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and they have that there, and there's the big queue, yeah. So I thought that might be a reference to that. 
And so on the news, they're talking about this woman and they give us a lot of exposition here. They say millions have flocked to self-help and human potential movements in recent years, but one of the earliest proponents has been largely forgotten until now. A polymath and idol didact, Ana Mireya Fierro, was born in Coyoacan, Mexico in 1905 and emigrated to the United States in the late 1940s. And so I just want to mention a polymath is someone who has a lot of knowledge across a number of subjects, and an autodidact is someone who's self-educated, and they, don't, they do it without guidance of masters or institutions. She rose to national prominence in the 1950s with the publication of her seminal work, Babylon Rising. Do you remember us talking about Babylon Rising? I vaguely did remember we talked about it, but I don't remember the context. So when we read 1952, one of the ladies was telling another lady, oh, I read this book called Babylon Rising. It's about unlearning. The key to learning is unlearning or something like that, she said. I like this panel layout on this page. It reminds me of um, early Dark Knight Return, the early, the Dark Knight Returns comic, where oh, yeah. whose uh, cast they would have it kind of laid out similar to this. And then this whole institution reminds me of like uh, Scientology or Nexium or some other exactly kind of thing. right. And so Fiero proposed that. It was possible to unlock hidden potential by retraining the brain with a new language based on pure mathematics, which she called the objective heuristic meta language. That's a new name for it. We've always wondered about that weird frog language. So, you mm. know, I think that this is what they're kind of referring to here. Though believed to have died in a fire some years ago, it is now being reported that she had in fact been living in seclusion, continuing her pioneering work. And now she is introducing her methods to the new generation at a recently opened facility in Arizona. And we see it. It's called the Ohm Institute. The Ohm symbol is a derived unit of electrical resistance named after the German physicist George Simon Ohm. The British Association for the Advancement of Science proposed a unit derived from existing units of mass, length, and time, and of the convenient size of a practical work as early as 1861. The definition of the Ohm has been revised several times. As of 2020, the definition is expressed in terms of the quantum Hall effect which I don't know anything about. Do you know anything about that? No, I'll Google it later. <laughs> <laughs> and so we cut over to the Ohm Institute, and we see this woman there. It looks like she's introducing the new recruits to the Institute. And she's saying how they'll work and live there. There's a gym, but most of the time will be spent in lecture halls and small group sessions. I'm at level three myself, she says. And I have to tell you, it is just amazing what the process can do for you. I feel like I'm an entirely different person than when I first walked through those doors. And so, yeah, it does give me like a Scientology kind yeah. of feel, right? One of the new recruits says, what about Miss Fierro? Is she here? She sure is. The trainer responds, Ana Mireya lives right here on the premises, but she's kept pretty busy working on improvements to the objective heuristic meta-language. But everyone who receives level five has a personal audience with her. So that's something to look forward to. And she's like, come along, I'll show you to the commissary and your dorms, and then to your first small group session. And so as the crowd is going forward, we see one of them is Michael, and he puts on his coat and his hat. I thought it was interesting that he's got the white coat and hat because it kind of looks like Roland Child from mm. 1952. He also had that same kind of style. We see Michael sneak off to a door that says authorized personnel. And it seems like he uses the prism to open it. So there's like another thing that it can do. And he hears this lecture taking place. The lecturer says, we literally cannot know the world around us. 
The beauty of the objective heuristic meta-language is that it is based on pure mathematics and science, and so can objectively define and describe reality. The meta-language employs a standard set of phonemes and morphemes, but it takes practice to get the pronunciation and syntax right. Let's try some easy examples. Repeat after me. And he starts speaking all that weird frog right, language. Right, and so they're all <laughs> chanting it in unison, Yeah, which is just... <laughs> It's it's an amazing grift. It's really impressive. Yeah, right. Like, we'll just get a bunch of fucking stupid asses. The objective heuristic meta language. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds easy. legit. Yeah. And they get everybody to do this thing, and it's yeah. Michael sneaks back and goes to another door. I like how it says, "Absolutely no admittance." I'm going in there. <laughs> and he uses the prism to open up that door. Ugh. And he sees a room filled with gurneys. Dark. And what looks like dead bodies covered in sheets. Hey, you can't be in here. Michael's confronted by the Ohm Institute goons. Get him, they say. No, Michael says. He takes out the prism. And then from outside of the door, we just see the flash of light. Again, we don't have to see what happens. It's like that's not the important part. Yeah, exactly. I just like the... We talked about how it flows, and I think this is a good example of that. It just kind of like, it keeps moving forward. You don't yeah. stop to linger on, oh, okay, what did that action beat look like? What just happened? It's that would like, really slow the story. It down, would, yeah. For sure. I mean, it's 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 indicating to us that this place is guarded. Yeah. He dispatches them and moves on. It's not, you know, important to where this story right, is going. Right, yeah. Michael enters another room that looks like a cavern. He goes through this large iron door. And inside, we see Ana Maria Fierro, and she's speaking that frog language, or what they're calling it, the objective heuristic meta-language, in front of the statue of Zarahem. We know Michael or one of the other visitors are familiar with this thing from that earlier flashback. So we know from that flashback in the very first page of this issue that he's already encountered this. He knows what this is. He knows what's happening here. You compared this to, to Scientology earlier, but the difference here is that this shit is actually that fucked up. Yes. And it's real. <laughs> and there is like some kind of a right, fucking yeah. alternate dimension monster. <laughs> so Yeah. Plot twist. <laughs> There's a you actually are, you know, right, doing yeah. the thing that the whatever right. scriptures are telling you. <laughs> And so we see Fiero, she's speaking the language, all of her followers are also speaking it too. She tells the followers the time is almost upon them. They've waited years for this after many setbacks. The spheres are moving into alignment, and as soon as they have the ranks that they need, they can dwell in the glory of Zarahem. No, I don't think you will, Michael says. Yeah, no. And there she's like, who is this? I am simply a visitor here, he says, but I have dealt with your sort before, Anna Maria Fierro. She tells him he's defiling their sacred place by being there, and she calls on her followers to seize him. You're calling upon forces you cannot hope to control, Michael says. You can't forces. You can't control them. <laughs> Whatever it is you intend to do here, it must end. Let us show you what we intend to do. And Get so she's Yeah. And so they all start speaking the language, and as they're speaking the language... We see like this vapor or something coming out of their mouth and it goes up into the sky and it's starting to create some sort of energy. And so I want us to think all the way back to the black flame. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but 
Pope in the Black Flame armor, he brought the frog monsters out and the frog monsters started speaking the language and then out of their mouths came yeah. what created the Black Flame. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think it's kind of hearkening back to that. This is the same thing that she's trying to do here. Instead of calling forth Kothahem, though, like in that story, they're trying to call forth guy. Zarahem. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, this would fuck shit up for pretty much everyone so yeah you can't do that <laughs> and she's like i know precisely what i'm doing i dedicated my entire life to the worship and study of our lord when zaraheim arrives in all his glory the faithful will be joined with him and the faithless will be swept away mm, he's gonna sweep everyone away every every single person so and fiero says what we've all figured out by now the ohm recruits are looking for improvement and teachings and these teachings are restructuring their minds to be suitable vessels for their lord's will more will join but this is a glimpse of the glory that will be brought upon them when the time comes fiero says they're super pumped to be frog monsters yeah basically the poor deluded fools michael says you promise them the world and risk destroying everything in the process there is another who might one day protect the world from the ogdrahem and their lackeys like you but until he is ready, it falls to me to do it. So I think this is really significant because is he saying like now he believes Hellboy? Oh yeah, he's will all be in. A, Yeah, now he now he's a believer, but he's like, but he can't do it now, so I'm gonna help him. I think that's really cool. And I and again, we don't have to get him writing in his little book or a word box that says no. now I know. Yeah, we've seen him watch Hellboy over the last three issues, and now he's kind of made up his mind of what that means to him. It needn't end this way, he tells Fiero. You could still turn back. And she's like, Zancti, yeah. Zancti Zaraham. He's like, ah, oh, such a pity. He takes the prism out, and then we finally get to see what it does here, right? It kind of blasts everybody. He's like, it, hey, you could you could just cut this shit out. And she's right. like, gibbledygoop. And he's like, all right. I just, okay. Never mind. And it dissipates the Zaraham that they were trying to form. And it looks like everybody else falls over, too. He says, what a waste. And in his notes, it was fortunate to arrive when I did. Had Fiero been able to carry out her plans, there would be little that I could have done to stop her. As it was, I successfully prevented the physical manifestation of an Ogdrahem, but not without cost. So now I wonder, uh, though, because we were talking about earlier, like, hey, are they dead? Right. And I was like, nah, they're fine. But, but here, now yeah. I think I missed this somehow to where they're all either dead or they're so fucked up that they're never right coming He's, back he so. says they're like mindless husks. yeah maybe y'all were right i i think i might have been wrong about that maybe it does right fuck them up beyond repair he says the local authorities will mistake it for yet another mass suicide no doubt the loss of so many young lives there was a time when i would not have given such after effects a second thought but lately i grow weary of carrying this burden and Man, I love fucking the... people up and killing them. That didn't used to suck, but now it sucks. Right. Well, I, I think also it reminds me of Hellboy yeah. and Hellboy's burden, which we're going to kind of see like he's got the burden now and then he's going to pass it off to Hellboy in Conqueror Worm. Just like Aubrey was saying, yeah. look, Roger, a dead alien. Yep. And he's going to hand over the prison yeah. to Hellboy and then Hellboy's just going to get it smashed. Well, he still manages <laughs> to get the job done. But yeah, what, but... So you, what were you going to say? You were going to say this... This panel? this panel at the bottom, Crabtree's colors. Oh my god, this yeah. is beautiful. As Michael is walking off into the dusk or whatever, it's just really great. The whole pacing of this page, and you really get the sense of his like 
sorrow or of his kind of he's starting to become human right he's starting to have human sentiments and i just think it's portrayed so beautifully as we go down into this panel and so we cut back to that flashback from the ancient henge or whatever was going on there and the same thing had happened right he used the prism to get all these people to stop with the zarahem and then just the two survivors are left and so he just looks at them, they ask him something in some sort of language, and he just walks off. So I'm assuming that it's that that's him, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you're right, it probably was a flashback. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I was wrong about, like, ah, they're just temporarily, they're gonna right, be okay. They yeah. probably were all either dead or fucked up super bad and as he has learned so much about humanity, maybe he's starting to think, like, hey, maybe some of them would have been like Ruby, and they would have helped people or something like that you know he's becoming more human over the course of this comic more sensitive to right you know all these people are are dead i mean yeah so and i he mentions somewhere in the story he mentions like oh once upon a time you know my people were like that but then over time they became less sensitive to that and so now he's becoming sensitive to it again and he doesn't know how to unsee that yeah, so, so far this has been amazing, and we'll discuss issues four and five on our next episode. I'm excited to hear everyone's feedback on The Visitor. I really love this series. This is one of my favorites, and I'm excited to get to the next episode so we can discuss the final two issues. And I'm so glad to be doing the podcast again. Thank you guys for being patient with us as we took a week off. And sorry for all of our rambling in the beginning of the episode, but... This is fun, and I do love looking at these comics, and I love interacting with all you guys, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this episode. And now, Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody. That was a fun story. It's good to be back, and we love to hear your feedback. You can send us at heyyoudamnguys at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast, and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find all of our resources on our Facebook About section and our Podbean webpage. As always, a special thank you to the Side Street Stuffers for the wonderful music that they provided for us today. Always a thank you to Mark Trudell for helping with the reading order, and a thank you to John for all the editing, and thank you, everybody, for just being freaking awesome. We love you guys. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we're reading The Visitor, How and Why He Stays, 4 and 5, plus God Rest Ye Mary. And maybe something a little special. Maybe not for our 100th episode. You never yeah. know. We'll have to wait and see. So, you know what to do. Pull out your back issues. Pull out your trades. Pull out your omnibuses. But there's not an omnibus for this, as far as I know. Uh, so but if you, you have can make one. one. Uh, if you have one, I'm curious <laughs> of how you got it. Uh, maybe, you're the, maybe you're the visitor, and you went into the future and got it. Exactly. And join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Danielle. And I'm Robert Loveless saying, I am simply a visitor here. Aww. Yeah. Aww. Uh, thank you, guys. <laughs>